0: Player season preview episode two here at Locked On Pacers as we look ahead at the upcoming season for some Pacers shooting guards. Benedict Matherin, Buddy Heald, and Ben Shepard. What to watch for in all of their seasons. Big questions, stats, roles, everything you'll need to know with Caitlin Cooper. It's all coming today on the Locked On Pacers podcast.
1: You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day
0: happy friday everybody hope you had a great weekend welcome into to another edition of the locked on pacers podcast where we of course talk about the indiana pacers as always my name is tony east i cover the team for forbes and si and today it's time for another player season preview episode looking ahead at 2023-24 this time for the shooting guards, the non 2 way contract guys, we're doing every player on the roster and today. It's Benedict Matherin, Buddy Heald, and Ben Shepard. Lots to get into with these three guys. Big season ahead for Heald because of his contract. Shepard because he's a rookie. And Matherin because... His steps forward are significant for the Pacers long-term and sh- potentially short-term goals. Kaylin Cooper from Basketball She wrote, is gonna join us for the second installment of this five-part series. If you're interested in the power forwards, Obi Toppin, Jarris Walker, and Jalen Smith, who's a power forward for sakes of this exercise, you can go back to Tuesday's episode. And next week we'll dive in to the centers and the wings. So lots of good stuff coming today. You'll hear about the key roles for these players. Questions and best and worst case scenarios about their season, what it means for other players on the roster and the short and long-term future of the Pacers. Really good in-depth analysis on all these guys that you won't want to miss. If you want to hear from a player who's going to be on the Pacers roster... Darius McKee was our guest yesterday. He played for the Pacers in Summer League, is going to sign an Exhibit 10 with them for training camp. That was yesterday's podcast. I think it was great. Darius was great. If you want to read that story, it's on Forbes. But today we're talking shooting guards. Let's just dive right in with Kalen Coop. It is time for more player season previews. And today there is no positional tomfoolery. Jalen Smith is not going to be talked about with the players today. It is shooting guards and it is guys who play primarily off-ball guard, or at least have for the Pacers, although one of them will maybe have the ball a lot this year. We'll see as we preview the these three guys and their seasons. As we do this reminder from the first episode, which if you want to go back and listen to, was on Tuesday looking at some power forwards. It's looking at the player's projected role, a big question about their season, and best and worst case scenarios, as well as statistical nuggets, as we can squeak them in there. And today it is Benedict Matherin and Buddy Heald and Ben Shepard in that order joining me to do this as we did on tuesday and as we will be doing approaching the season it's caitlin cooper who spoke german last time i don't think the german's coming this time caitlin
1: i don't think it is either the only foreign language we would need today is perhaps french although i do think ben speaks multiple languages but i don't have any french in my bag sorry sorry to the listeners i don't have any of that to pull out today
0: Uh, is there any other languages in the bahamas besides english i'm sure there's something I don't want to look dumb, so I'm going to say I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I, I propose it as a question because I don't know. Buddy Heald, if you're listening, please let us know in some way, shape, or form. We will go in order of Matherin, Heald, Shepherd. today. Last time, I had two players. This time, Caitlin has two players, and they are both of the Ben's. We'll start with Benedict, Matherin. Caitlin. what you got?
1: Okay, so I think we're just going to start off with the big question because I think that's going to guide our conversation best. And kind of want to go back to last year at this time at Media Day when I remember Kevin Pritchard said something along the lines, and I am paraphrasing here, but he was referencing somebody asking him, like, do you guys have a core? And him saying, maybe, maybe not, but we're getting closer. And at the end of this season, he effectively talked about like needing to build the foundation. Do we need more foundation? Then the walls can go up, then the roof can go up. So, my big question with Benedict Matherin is, by the end of this season, will we definitively know that he is a foundational piece of this core?
0: You know, what's funny is uh, the reason I think that's a great question too, is last year, I was fairly confident that Chris Duarte was a part of the Pacers core and he is now on the Sacramento Kings in exchange for two second round picks. So like, that's the big picture way of saying you never know. But of course the more micro things are the reason this question isn't obvious after all first team all rookie campaign is all about fit to me, right? Like, it's more than that. That's not fair, but the things he's good at are valuable, but the things he's good at also require him having the ball and not Tyrese and having it as much, and so for the Pacers' offense to be truly complementary and Matherin to be a part of a core involving Tyrese Halbert and whatever other players, you'll have to add skills that make it obvious he can be on the court at the same time with their star player in a way that is additive, and they can play well together, and I think they can if he adds some key skills, but I think a big part of that question for me will be more about fit than any specific growth within his game.
1: I think that's fair. And also, like, I like that you bring up Chris Duarte because I do think that year two is a lot different than year one. And Tyrese Halliburton even spoke to this around the time that Chris Duarte was struggling at the beginning of the season in reference to himself saying how much different it was once teams had a year of scouting report information on him and the adjustments that need to be made. And I expect that that's what Ben's going to find early in the year. And that's why I truthfully believe that this needs to be the year of Ben. And I think that it's going to be very revealing one way or the other, how he approaches the early going of the season, what he's worked on in the off season. It looks like he's doing a lot in the mid range, which I do think will be helpful to him, especially if he does see longer closeouts, but Yeah, I mean, I just think the big question is about the core because another quote that I think is interesting along with this is when Tyrese was in exit interviews and talking about him potentially, you know, being a recruiter at some point in time and him saying, you know, I know Kevin Pritchard likes to give me a lot of credit, but I think there's a lot of different things that could contribute to it. And I think that obviously in any small market, it's not easy to land free agents, but if people see winning basketball being played, they're going to want to go there. And then he referenced being from Wisconsin and how he's seen it firsthand in Milwaukee and how they always struggled to get free agents. And then the two names that really stood out here that he pointed out specifically was now they get Joe Ingles. Now they get Jay Crowder. And like, to me, going back to what Kevin Pritchard said when he's like, you got to get your foundation right, then you put up the walls, then you put up the roof. You're talking about, you know, the very complementary players of the roof variety there that Tyrese is referencing. So it yeah. really is important that the Pacers identify and are, as they've said, obsessed with finding the right core and whether Ben can reveal that self that about himself. So I think we can just hop right into the role projection from there and what you said about, you know, how much will he have the ball in his hands and how will we complement Tyrese – like a number that jumps out to me is that his usage rate when he played with Tyrese last year was under 20%. When he didn't play with Tyrese, it was over 25%. So I think that that kind of went into why it did make sense for him to be coming off the bench as a rookie last year and get to stretch his legs more and what he got to do. But I think both of us are probably in agreement that it seems most likely, and I think what the Pacers need to do is start him from the beginning of the season.
0: Yeah, and a lot of his starts at the end of last year were without. Terry's playing, right. right? So it's hard to kind of glean a lot from what those starting reps actually meant beyond playing against better talent. So I agree that that is a big part of what I'll be intrigued by this year. And like the Pacers as a team, and this is like a very narrow way of looking at this, and this will come up again later. But their net rating with both of those guys on the floor was like fine. You know, it wasn't bad. It was, I think, it was above zero by like barely anything. I don't know if you have that right in front of you or not, but yeah, like they they weren't they weren't such a bad fit that it was like. Harmful, but it definitely made Ben less effective at the things he's good at. When he likes to size it up and figure out how he can attack and get to the basket, draw foul, or get a bucket in his way of scoring, and that's great if it if it's the best thing to do. And with the bench units, oftentimes it was. But when Halbert's out there and can create for anybody or do his thing in transition or get everybody going early in the offense, like I don't want to call Mather a ball stopper, but he definitely more so than anyone else on the team would hold it and assess himself. You know how is that going to look? Is the ball going to keep popping? Are those lineups going to do what they call random action? It's not random, but they call it random actions, right? Like, can they do all that with Ben involved? And then can Mather and be as good as as the stuff that he's good at? I said that poorly. Getting to the line, being an attacker in those situations where he's asked to kind of move the ball more, to be more of a part of a unit instead of a solo mission player. I think he can do some of that stuff. Like early in the season, he was making threes and. Pairing well with McConnell and Nemhard, you know, that was the most complimentary he was. And obviously the ISO scoring was, was there at that stage early. But when the threes went away, he kind of tried to rely too much to me on his ability to get to the rim and draw fouls. And so, you know, keeping the ball moving, the threes falling, I think will be important for him at the, the lowest possible level. And those are the key two skills that I'll be looking at for him all season to both pair well with Halbert and in general fit into what that starting five is going to look like.
1: Yeah, and I think for me, it goes back to, I like that you bring up the shot because in many cases, a shot is a swing skill for most players, but I definitely think that it is for Ben and specifically in spot up situations because he is going to be playing off ball next to Tyrese and I I still think he is best out of second side actions when he can really come off a screen and get rolling downhill to the basket, but some of this goes to, and this was true during his second year at Arizona and it ended up being true last year, that he shot the ball at Arizona better on threes coming off of screens than he did uncontested threes, which to me at the time, I was like, this is noisy. This is going to correct. And I thought the same last year. And then his three-point percentage obviously dropped off midway through the year. And now looking back at it and having watched all of his film, I wrote a piece over at basketball. She wrote watching all of his kick out and skip passes. And all of this goes together. I think a lot more of it was when I'm coming off a screen, it's because Arizona is running a specific play for me. And I know this shot is for me and I take it in rhythm when he's in spot up situations and he's having to read the closeout. He started seeing shorter closeouts as the year went on last year because he wasn't shooting the ball as well. And when he saw a shorter closeout, he tends to double clutch because his natural tendency is to play out a triple threat, which is a good thing because his first step is very deceptive, but He wants to jab right and go to his left. So he drives left on like 60% of his drives. And then therefore the problem is in that piece that I wrote, he did not make a pass with his left hand to the right side of the floor last year, which not everybody can do that with their weak hand. But if you're going to drive that much and make your weak hand a strength, that becomes somewhat of a problem for him. Now, all this I think will mitigate if he's hitting. Like I said, the spot up threes at better than a thirty one percent clip because, it, like we said last on the last episode with Jalen Smith and you know that volume of one hundred and fifty some players or whatever it was who attempted one hundred and fifty catch threes. Like Ben wasn't that far off from Jalen. He was like bottom five, bottom six, and his conversion rate on those shots. If he's seeing a longer closeout and he can get past the first line of defense, he's good enough at. He's flexible enough in the air and good enough at bending into contact that what we saw with him mastering the dark arts of drawing contact and getting to the line, I think is still going to work for him, even if he doesn't make like a monumental stride as a passer. But those are things that he's definitely going to have to work on for the overall partnership with Tyrese to really be what I think it's possible of being.
0: Hey guys, let's take a short little break here before we dive back in talking about pastry shooting guards to talk about FanDuel. It's the NFL season. We're starting week two, and it's time to dive into the incredible offers on FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers on FanDuel can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV just by doing that. It's easy. Now's the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use. You can bet on everything from spreads to player props to whatever you like, your parlays and more all on FanDuel. If you visit FanDuel.com slash on, you'll get all those offers. $200 in bonus bets, $100 off NFL Sunday ticket. The NFL season is off. You don't want to miss this offer from FanDuel. That's FanDuel.com slash lockdown. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. I think he would benefit the most from the Spursian. I, I guess the Spurs are the team that coined it, but a lot of teams do it. The Greg Popovich 0.5 rule, right? Like mm-hmm. if he doesn't shoot or do anything in have a second, give it up. Just like even if it's just a generic toss to someone else to reset something like that is more beneficial than sizing it up and clutching sometimes at least and putting it on the floor, depending on what your matchup is, because that would, I think, kind of force him into habits of shooting right when he catches even if the play wasn't necessarily designed for him, or passing to someone else who can make that read right away, or even passing to someone who can score right away, right? Like, on positions, like, this this was noteworthy to me. In the second summer league game, I don't remember exactly, I think it was six assists he had, and five of them were just, like, the easiest passes ever, like, swinging on the perimeter, or dump it to someone in the post who's open, rolling, and, like, that is all it takes, to me, for him to take a pretty significant step forward, is just, like, very generic, easy reads that come in the flow of the offense all the time. And so if he can have that mentality shift of, you know, don't think about it, just like make the the play that seems right, right away, which is hard. That's not an easy shift for players to make, to be clear. That would kind of correct a lot of his problems at once, air quotes, at once, and instantly make him a better fit with basically every player.
1: It was good to see him make some just extra swing passes to the corner a few times in that particular game. And some of that was coming in transition, which, you know, isn't nothing. But the stare down threes that he was taking in that it's like, okay you're turning something into an isolation that didn't necessarily need to be an isolation. And then you could see that teams were loading up on the drives. And that kind of goes back to how this starting lineup may or may not be assembled. Obviously, you and I are just making educated guesses here. But if it is Ben and you're looking at Bruce and Obi Toppin, that's going to be a different spacing around Ben than if it was Buddy Heald and Andrew Nemhard slash Aaron Neesmith, like what was the case last year. So there's already going to be more incentive to load up on his drive just by virtue of what the surrounding credibility of the spacing is going to be. So his ability to process the kickout avenues when he gets to the rim, I think is still going to come into play unless he's shooting at such a level that it it's keeping Defenders honest at the first level. So I think that's number one. And then also, like if we were talking about his role projection, if you want to flip over to the defensive side of the floor, I think what's interesting here as well is where are you seeing this? Isn't a Bruce Brown pod, but it does, it matters for Ben's (laughs) sake here. What do you expect will be Bruce Brown's primary assignment next year? Like against opposing teams? Is he a point of attack defender? Is he taking on the other team's top assignment? Because that uh, would matter yeah, for what no. Ben's I, doing.
0: I figure he would take the like for lack of a better term, lead ball handler. So Tyrese doesn't have to more often because Ty's better off the ball and as a roamer and reading passing lanes and Bruce Brown's more pesty and strengthy on the ball. He can do both, but I think he is much better in that way. So that's what I am assuming his role will be defensively. Is that what you do as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I don't at the beginning of games, if that is the lineup, I don't think you have much choice but to put Bruce Brown at the point of attack because yep. Tyrese had a few moments here and there at FIBA that were bright spots, but for the most part, it still looked to me like he was getting overpowered at that position and Team USA was even still assigning him. I mean, when they played late in the friendly against Germany, when they had the closing lineup out there with um, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Mikel Bridges and Edwards and Reeves, they were putting Tyrese on Daniel Tice as the low man and just expecting him to box out which he had okay okay moments boxing him out on occasion but like they were not going to put him on Schroeder they were not going to put him on Wagner and I don't expect that that mentality is going to change for the Pacers either because what he does in transition is so important so you really don't want him taking on more load even if he had improved at it so the reason I bring this up is like let's just imagine a matchup here if they're playing the Cleveland Cavaliers which is why I kind of wanted to write about the in-season tournament if they're playing against the Cleveland Cavaliers and Cleveland starting Garland, Mitchell, Struce, Mobley, and Allen. Most likely, you're going to put Tyrese on Max Struce, which is what they yes. did with the Coral last year. And then you're going to have to choose for Ben if he's guarding Donovan Mitchell or if he's guarding Darius Garland. And it's going to be the same thing when you play Detroit. Most likely, you're going to sign Tyrese to Boyan Bogdanovich, and then you're going to have to make a choice of whether Ben's going to be defending Kate Cunningham or trying to corral Jaden Ivey's weak side speed being unleashed. So... Like, one way or another, it's a lot different than last year when you had Smith and Andrew Nemhard, who you could put one of them on the top assignment and one of them at the point of attack. You don't really have that option. Like, you're not putting Obi Toppin at the point of attack. So Ben is going to have to take on tougher assignments, and they were having him do some of that at the end of last year, as you know, as we remember. I think he did get assigned to Jaden Ivey in that last game against Detroit. He did get assigned to Fred VanVleet up in Toronto. I thought that was pretty mixed, and there were times where they had to adjust away from it because it really wasn't going super well. So I just think that on both ends of the floor, a lot is going to be expected of Ben. So, and the role projection category and what they need for him in terms of making an additional leap this year.
0: Yeah, and he, like every player wants to be good on defense, but like, I think he wants those tough assignments, which is encouraging, I suppose, but I would like to see what the growth actually looks like because he is strong, you know, to me, like he's not slow and he's strong. So he should be able to, at least on the ball, if he's engaged, hold up credibly. If he's not, he's not going to get beat off the dribble all the time, but he's not always engaged and off the ball. He really floats and gets too close to the ball a lot. And that forces him to have to close out hard or be in a weird position. Like he more than anyone, I think would benefit from the stuff Dan Burke was so good at from a coaching on defense perspective of getting guys in the right position, having them standing at the right angle so that, they can recover so that they can get to their man so they don't get lost as much like he of anyone would benefit the most from that because then his defense would at least look a lot more polished to me and fit in the the group we're describing. The other question I would have for him from a defense and offense perspective is see the first sub that comes out because I think with the second unit, he could do what you said earlier and have that higher usage and his defensive role would change at least a little bit playing with Nemhard and possibly Nismith. So if he's the first guy that comes out, I think you can see him Do a little bit more of the stuff he did last year with the second group, but I that is just a guess. And so I'd be curious how much that changes from group to group.
1: I was going to bring this up when we got to the Buddy Healed segment, but I suspect that is what it will be. I think Buddy will probably be the most the first sub off the bench, the sixth man to come in early for Ben, so that Buddy can still play and get minutes with Tyrese because they're the wavelength between them is so important. And so, what we said before about the usage rate with Ben, and for what you just said defensively. So, and I think with Ben, a lot of times defensively, the problem is, is that like he got that stop against Shea Gilgis. Like there are bright spot moments where you can watch him as like an on ball stopper on occasion when he's in space. But then when he's having to navigate a screen and like you could hear it in summer league multiple times where they're yelling veer, which means they want to late switch or chain. You're chasing over. If the guy can't get over and get back in front in time, then that guy's supposed to veer in front of the roller and Ben like just doesn't do it or he can't find the screener. And then it creates domino effects for other people. And if you're to sign him off ball, he still has like processing lapses when he's scrambling or just getting somebody back cutting behind him. So like I said, there's a lot of stuff to look at there. But if we want to go to best case, worst case, I think the best case, like we're I'm talking granularly here, is that the shooting looks more like it did at the beginning of last season. His work in the mid-range makes it even, I wouldn't say unimportant, but less important with some of the passing because if he can take like a one dribble pull up in space after beating that closeout, that will help him not have to see as many crowds at the rim, um, that he can take on better matchups. And then I think most importantly here, is what I said at the beginning that he definitively looks like a critical piece of the core, and that he's in closing lineups not because you're just trying to get him developmental reps, but because you want him in the closing lineup.
0: So he's getting real closing lineup opportunities, and not Christian Wood closing lineup opportunities. Is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, effectively.
0: <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, for like for me, it's even just even if the shot's not there, but he looks like a decent and like the Donovan Mitchell playmaking growth from his first to second season where he could just make basic reads on drives like that made him a lot better and a lot harder to guard. And they were willing to set screens for him more often. And yeah, that's different when you're playing with Tyrese Halliburton Mitchell was not playing with a point guard of that talent level, but either one of those seals taking a step forward to me would be a best case scenario. Both would obviously be amazing if you're the facers, but I don't expect that. So either one of the shooting or passing, taking a step forward, just make him defended differently or like it's harder to close out. Like you've said, in a way that would be significant. And yes, I think big picture, Just the fact like this time next year, it's not a Duarte situation where you're thinking about, well, Steven even in the mix for minutes and this Ben Shepard kid's coming up and blah, blah, blah. It's very obvious that he should be starting and be a part of the young core that they're building.
1: Yes. I mean, that's effectively the worst case, right? That he doesn't make strides in the key areas, which is his shot, his passing when he gets to the rim and his defense. Teams are loading up on his drives and then it would get to the point where you would feel like you need to start starting Buddy instead of him. And if you get to the point where you need to start starting Buddy instead of him, then you're having the conversation that does Ben top out as like a microwave scorer off the bench? And if that's the case, you're not as close to having your foundation as you might have thought at the end of last season. You have more work to do, and that delays your timeline a bit. So I think that's kind of where I would lay out the worst case. But I do want to end this on a happy note because I did forget to bring up one stat that I wanted to bring up, which was you have to go pretty far back in Pacer history recent Pacer history, at least, to find a rotation player who had a free throw attempt rate that Ben did last year. Like I was Mm -hmm. doing just a basic scan. And the first person I could see, because Ben's was 47.7% as of the amount of free throws he took on his shot attempts was Yon Mahinmi in 2012, 13. And that was because Yon only attempted four shots per game. So like you had to go pretty far back and then also just rookies overall, there's only been five rookies in the last five seasons who have averaged over five free throws. So that was Zion. Palo along with Ben last year and Luca and Trey. So this is a very important skill and gift that Ben has. It's I, I think it's going to be harder for him to execute some of that based on how the defenses adjust, but that is a definite skill that the Patriots have not had in, in abundant supply in the last however many years, so... I do want to end it on a happy note on the Ben Mazarin
0: uh, section here. I was going to say your worst case scenario should be that the free throw rate dips to like 35, 30% <laughs> because that to me is why I'm so high on him because like rookie guards who have his free throw rate and took more than like five shots a game, like ever, everybody who cracked 40% free throw rate, like 10 of the 15 became a very good player basically. Like and the and the other five, like three of them were still good. And two of them, I was like, who the hell's that? So <laughs> I hope that it's not a, the who the hell's that? But it seems like that skill building out from there can be encouraging. But you have to build out. You can't just stagnate at that player. Like, like Doc Rivers is one of them who kind of was good. And he, I think he was an all-star once. But like kind of stagnated from that sort of start. You mentioned Buddy Hield. Let's go to Buddy Hield. Let's this go to Buddy Hield. One more break here, guys, so I can talk to you about the great people over at Jace Medical. Who don't want you to get caught unprepared. Everybody should be empowered to care for themselves and their loved ones during the unexpected and during emergencies. Jace handles everything from online evaluations to licensed pharmacy medication delivery and ongoing consultation and care. They make the Jace case, which provides five life saving antibiotics for emergency use and all it takes to get a Jace case. Filling out a simple online form and, in some cases, jumping on a quick call with one of their board-certified positions. You can get ongoing care from their physicians on any treatment-related questions. Doctor care, doctor recommended. Check them out. The Jace case is fantastic. It's easy as one, two, three, and it comes just in time. So you should not be caught unprepared for whatever reasons in a medical emergency. Supply chain shortages, natural disasters, travel pandemics, whatever. Lots of stuff. Can get in the way. Jace Medical is simple. Just go online, fill out that form, get your prescription and life-saving medications right to your door with the Jace case. And you can save more than three hundred and sixty dollars by getting these life-saving antibiotics with Jace Medical plus an additional twenty dollars off by using our code Lockdown at checkout on JaceMedical.com. That's J-A-S-E Medical.com and the promo code Lockdown. This one was me. This is an interesting player for several reasons this season. And the hangover here, like the hangover with Ben Matherin is what you said. Is he a part of the core, we'll find out more this year. The hangover with Buddy Hield is a contract year, right? Like, what does his future actually look like? How important is he to this team? Because he pairs very well with the star player. But also, you have to consider your contractual future. That's why I wanted to exactly look up and remember Kevin Pritchard's quote about Buddy Hield. From the end of season presser he did last year, Dustin Dopierak asked about Buddy's future and extensions and all that. And I'm paraphrasing, but Pritchard said something like, we've got to find a role that makes sense for Buddy Heald and that Buddy Heald's okay with, like implying it's a two-way street. And if we can, then yeah, we would keep Buddy Heald. And like that to me, Red, is like, there could be change coming in that category. And if it works great, then yeah, this could be something that continues long-term, and if it doesn't work great or no one's happy with it, then maybe not. And so Buddy Heald fitting in whatever role he has with potentially a promotion for Mather and with Bruce Brown now being on the team with potentially more minutes coming for an Andrew Nembhard, too. How does he fit into this new-look off-ball guard mix? How does it work if he does play less with Tyrese Halberd? All these questions are a part of that, and his contract situation certainly is kind of the undercurrent of all of it, pushing towards what this season could be for him.
1: I think, that, yeah, because I mean, it was evident that Kevin Pritchard and I think the Pacers as a whole value how durable Buddy is, value yes. how much Buddy loves the game. I think that Buddy was a critical piece last year. And like if we're being completely honest, like if if the main goal for next season was solely to win games in the short term, I don't think that there would be a compelling reason not to start Buddy Yield. Agreed. Um, You can see that in the numbers like they barely outscored opponents when Tyrese and Buddy were both on the floor together. But they got wrecked in the minutes when Buddy played without Tyrese, as well as when Tyrese played without Buddy.
0: Those were. Oh, oh. that stat will come up in this segment. Let me tell you, I am prepared with that one.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, and you can see it in so many different ways, because not only was that the number one. Uh, assist combo on made threes in the NBA last year, but Buddy led the league in transition threes made per game. He led the league in threes, attempted between 22 and 18 seconds on the shot clock. Tyrese is very much the engine of what they do in transition, but I think Buddy is very clearly an extension of it, his willingness to consistently sprint to the line and be able to stay on balance and stop and pop and, you know, kind of ask forgiveness later for some of the shots that he's willing to take and that are okay for him to take because he is that caliber of shooter. What he does for Tyrese Halliburton as a ghost screener. Nobody else is putting that much tension slipping out into space as Buddy. Nobody else is putting that much tension as a stack screener in the half court as Buddy. So I just think that there's a lot of different things that they do. And while Buddy isn't the best defender, and it was clear to me that they had challenged him to get better on that end of the floor, it's not like you can make a case and be like, oh, well, Ben is a significantly better defender than Buddy Heald. Um They both have some shortcomings there, so... I think that, like I said, if it was just, if we were just going on paper about what makes the most sense, you would make Buddy Heel the starter. But in terms of the long-term goals of this organization, determining if Ben is a critical piece of this core, you need, it needs to be Ben.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's going to be a crucial part of this season is figuring out if uh, they can get away with that change and to get the timeline all set for what I'm about to say, because I, Caitlin, I cheated. I okay. blended the role and question segments for this. Oh, no. Because of what Kevin said, though, because of him saying we have, he used the word that we're talking about here. We have to find the role that makes no sense for Buddy Yield. Okay, that is the role. So my question would be, what is that role? What do you? What would the role be for him that makes sense given what you just said, the Pacers' long-term goals with young players, figuring out who's a part of their core that he likes and that he's good in in a way that you want to keep him? What is that? Does that actually exist? Does that make sense for every single party involved involved both short and long-term goals. So the the timeline here, because people ask this a lot, why do you keep talking about Buddy Heald maybe being traded? Why, why is it Buddy Heald a lock for a starter? Let's go through the whole thing chronologically. First thing that happens, they aren't technically eliminated from the playoffs yet last season, but they're pretty close. Ben Matherin st- begins starting games. And Tyrese Halliburton wasn't playing, or maybe he played twice in the stretch, but Ben Matherin starts starting, and Buddy Heald was still playing. He played in a lot of these games, and he came off the bench behind Ben Matherin. That was thing one that made me think, hmm, they're getting ready to prep for this being a long-term thing. Two, Kevin Pritchard says what he already said about Buddy Heald's role, and they have to figure out what makes sense and how that is a long-term decision for the franchise. Three, we've alluded to this a lot. Ben Matherin on the Stephen A. Smith broadcast saying he pictures himself starting on the wing this coming season. I, again, have not seen that myself. I really did actually dig in and find it. But Scott Agnes has it up on Fieldhouse Files if you want to read the quotes. And you can see some of his interviews with Stephen A. on YouTube, but not the full length broadcast. That was thing three. And I am now forgetting the fourth thing. Uh (laughs) that I I had a fourth one and I can't remember it. Um for this order. Oh, yeah. Signing Bruce Brown also is like you can't start both Ben and Buddy. So now you have to really figure out how this all marries itself together. And so I point to all of those things to say. I they gave Bruce Brown a lot of money. I don't think Buddy Heald would start because of all those factors. So, because I don't think Buddy Heald is starting because of all the things I just said, what is that role that Kevin Pritchard alluded to? Because I, I typed for Buddy's role in the mix for big guard slash wing minutes, but how big is it because of the thing you just said a second ago? I've been talking for a while. I feel bad. But let, let me actually read you the numbers. I think most people know them. This is from PVP Stats, who does great on-off data, great lineup data. Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald both on the court. Pacers net rating last year was point for a team that was not very good or well it was under 500 A plus net rating is good um, their offense was unbelievable almost 120 offensive rating their defense was atrocious almost 119 but still the team won no minutes with both of them together with just buddy Yield and no Tyrese Halberd minus 6.35 per 100 possessions 117.7 defensive rating 111 offensive rating At- atrocious on both ends really with just Tyrese and no buddy Minus 7.99 points per 100 possessions. 115.17 offensive rating. That's fantastic. 123.16 defensive rating. That's so high that it's like, obviously, there's some small sample size stuff going on here. That was less than 400 minutes. But that still is reflective of what you just said, that they pair together really well. And when they're apart, it, it's not even that when they're apart, Ty can hold up other units because he's so good. It still didn't work very well for the Pacers. So what is this role for Buddy Heald that makes sense for Buddy Heald and makes sense for the Pacers and doesn't totally crater their team in a way that those numbers are now just on a bigger scale next season. And that's why I think what you said earlier is probably correct that he'll be the first guy of the bench because they need to have as many of those tie Buddy minutes as they can. And rant. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's just what it has to be. And you have to maintain, too, like, obviously other teams can watch film and they know what Buddy Heald can do. But in the 10 games when Tyrese was out after the injury, there were games where buddy attempted like three threes in a game.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And some of that was because, okay, now Tyrese isn't in the starting lineup. So now like Mikel Bridges is defending buddy healed, which isn't an assignment that buddy would be drawing if Tyrese was playing or if buddy was coming off the bench. So over those like last 10 or so games of the year when Tyrese was no longer playing and Buddy had moved back to the bench with Ben in the starting lineup, his numbers had stabilized. He was still getting three-point attempts coming off of bench units, and he wasn't drawing those tougher assignments against starters as much, obviously. So I think that it's realistic that he'll still produce, but I don't know that for certain just because that wavelength is so important between the two of them that a piece of this is it is possible that they will want to trade him or that they will need to, if they don't sign him to an extension. So before the trade deadline, you want to make sure that buddy's still looking like his trade value, honestly may never be as high as it is currently right Right now coming off of that season. So if you don't
0: eligible for other teams, if they trade it right now,
1: right? So if you don't have him as the sixth man coming in early to play minutes with Tyrese and he isn't still playing significant minutes, does that hamper your trade value later on? And I can just see a situation, like I said, where if, if Ben has any adjustment period at all early on, and if the spacing isn't quite what it was, and if you're, if Obi top starting and you're not making enough strides defensively either where the pressure's going to be on where it's like, should they be starting buddy? Like I'm just, I'm foreseeing that. And I don't think that you can, I think you have to stay the course because Ben's going to have to work his way into that. And I, I can just see there being some um, temptation to want to flip flop that, but we'll <laughs> see.
0: I uh, what what date do you think Caitlin? I will post the lockdown Pacers episode with the title of should buddy he'll be starting for the Pacers November, like Thanksgiving. Do I get to Thanksgiving?
1: Yeah, probably the black Friday game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Cause I think it will be a talking point all season just for some numbers here. So Ben Matherin began his end of season role as a starter on March 24th, that was in Boston. And so they played in Boston, and then they played in Atlanta. Tyrese Haliburton played in those two games, and then his season was over after those two. So those first two games where Ty was playing and Ben started, the first one, Buddy Heald went two for nine with eight points, but he had a good rebounding game, had eight rebounds, and he had four assists. And then the next game in Atlanta, he went five for 16 with 16 points, and he had four rebounds and five assists. So his passing was actually kind of solid with the second unit there, but the shooting numbers clearly dipped. Then he had the flu, and he missed two games, which was like the most unheard of thing ever. Everybody healed. And then in the last six, uh, five, I can count. In the last five games, he came off the bench behind Ben. He didn't crack 24 minutes in a single one of these games, but he averaged 14.6 points and had 53-50 splits shooting the ball. So he did find a way to have yep. some success there. And I think if you're the Pacers, you hope that that's something that can continue going forward. But there's also evidence from those first two games where Tyrese did play that maybe he can't quite have it all the time. So the the that's such a small sample that it's impossible to read anything significant from it, but it does matter because that is the only sample we have of Ben starting buddy coming off the bench for at least more than a, a game for various reasons. So I wanted to look into those numbers a little more.
1: One thing that might help him out too, Is the defensive load will be very different for him, I would imagine, because so many things were so weird for him at times last year. Because if we just look back at that Cleveland matchup that I brought up before, when last year it was Tyrese defending Okoro and then either Nemhard or Neesmith defending Garland or Mitchell, Buddy has to guard somebody. So Buddy's defending Jarrett Allen and then being pre-switched into screens onto Evan Mobley so that they can switch ball screens and take away lobs and keep miles around the rim. Like how many games were there last year? I looked on defensive matchup data and buddy logged almost 50% of his defensive possessions against either power forwards or centers because of just what type of lineups they were playing. If he slides back to the bench and you're playing Jairus Walker off the bench, Buddy's not having to do that type of heavy lifting where, you know, he's defending Kristaps yep. Przingis in the post, or he's <laughs> literally defending Kevin Durant at the end of a game. And to buddy's credit, there were times where he did okay with that type of stuff. Like you really wasn't that bad against Kevin Durant, as you might imagine in your head. But like, that's not as much for him to have be having to do, and especially when Andrew Nemhard is going to potentially be in that lineup, maybe Aaron Nismith in that lineup. There will be more insulation around him to not have to be doing as much on that end of the floor. And then, like you said, I do think over the back end of the season, when he was playing with T.J. McConnell on the bench, it wasn't as noticeable that he wasn't playing with Tyrese as it was during the ten games when Tyrese was injured and he was a yeah. starter and being guarded by. You know, teams that were giving him a lot more defensive attention because Halliburton wasn't out there.
0: Uh, let's let's pull up that stretch just for funsies. What was the game that uh, Tyrese returned? I can't. I should know this. this should uh, be my game. I
1: think he was playing against. Was it the Lakers?
0: It was the Lakers. You're right because he played both games of back to back, and that surprised me. Okay, ten game stretch here for Buddy Heald from no Tyrese playing. So between the Knicks game where he got hurt, and then between the Lakers game. Yes, that's right. February first game of February. Buddy Heald. Shot forty-one percent from the field, although he shot better than his field goal percentage from three. So he couldn't get going inside the arc. Fourteen points a game. So really, it was the twos and the stuff inside the arc. And like those twos combo is when I when the pitcher talk about random action, kind of what I'm thinking because Buddy Heald can just run around like crazy. Yeah, and Tyrese just understands who he is, and no one else really can do it as well as he can. And maybe that's just because they've played together their entire careers. But
1: well, another of- element of that is that Tyrese's spacing isn't there. Like right. when you don't have Tyrese as a pull-up shooter to bring Biggs out away from the basket, then it makes it harder for buddy. Well, to be I a thought cutter. TJ
0: McConnell was a good shooter now, Caitlin.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's definitely <laughs> changed. The tide has turned. <laughs> he, he hit that one transition three that
0: one time. That Bucks game was like an out-of-body experience because he was hitting pull-ups and transition. Rick
1: Lopez three. did a hard show on pick and roll coverage against TJ McConnell. It was a oh, spade pick and roll and he stepped out.
0: The one where he stole the inbounds pass and then immediately pulled up from the corner, that's when I was like, okay. I, this <laughs> this is wild stuff. And they lost. <laughs> they lost. That's how hard it is for the Pacers to beat Giannis. McConnell can do that, and they still is. So all of this stuff we've just tied in, buddy, to Halliburton with. And after talking about Matherwood starting, makes me wonder what his season and role is going to look like. And I think that's going to be the biggest question about his season. And the biggest questions I'll have is, what is that role? And does Buddy do well in it? And does he like it? I think is a question that I haven't even thrown in because that was a subtle part of his King's exit and time there is that there was a lot of reporting he didn't like coming off the bench for that Sacramento team. Is he more willing to accept that now that he is older, wiser, uh, has understood what his NBA role is like a little more? So best case scenario to me for Buddy Hill, does he find a niche on the scene without Tyrese Halliburton right and can help a little bit more in more varied lineups and of course those lineups with them together would still be great and in that case I think the Pacers would be more willing to extend him or renegotiate and extend him or whatever they could decide to do and keep him around in a way that he would be a part of their team going forward as they try to get better and the worst case would be of course the opposite where in his non-Tyrese minutes he just looks totally ineffective the team can't do anything His defense is such a big negative that even if he's shooting well, he's not a positive player, and they have to think of trading him in February when his value is so low that you'll be talking about, well, is his value for these last 30 games more than a second-round pick that we could get for actually trading him? All those sort of awkward conversations.
1: I mean, I do think on the one side of it is I'm obviously not Buddy Heald. I'm not going to say what he is happy and isn't happy doing, but the difference between Sacramento especially in Luke Walton's offense to Rick Carlisle's is I just think Rick Carlisle's offense overall suits buddy a lot better. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot more space to still incorporate him, whether he's playing with Tyrese or not. So I just think the freedom that he has to be moving within this scheme and the fact that they, they still do play up tempo even when Tyrese isn't on the court, like TJ McConnell is still like top seven and hit ahead passes himself. So like that's helpful as well, where you can, you can talk yourself into a way where he might still enjoy playing for the Indiana Pacers, even if he doesn't come out with the starting group again, I'm not him. I can't speak for him, but just looking schematically the way the Pacers play on offense, I think still suits buddy Heald better than what was the case when he was coming off the
0: bench for the Kings. There's not going to be any, uh boo birds coming out. If buddy Heald returns to Indiana, is that what you're telling me in the future? <laughs> that was so interesting to me like i get why there was some animosity there but they booed him the whole game 48 minutes that was stunning to me like that is reserved for like the paul george level of haterade when like your star player demands a trade i was like man they did not like this guy that it feels like, it. like both teams should just be like yay Sabonis <laughs> and tyrese are
1: good yeah. for their new teams yeah i know and idea. they were also good for our
0: teams <laughs> What did they sign? Like $500 million of money this summer? Like, clearly that was great for everyone involved. And somehow it's still so still strange also shout out to Tristan Thompson we got to him today for being a part of that trade and being back in the NBA this coming season that's a perfect I'm so mad there was no tribute video for those four <laughs> games that Tristan Thompson played as the small side before we get to Ben Shepard one of the funniest things that's ever happened in my time coming to Pacers is Tristan Thompson posting a thank you in the Instagram yes. after four games well <laughs> never forget he had like a game, game where
1: he went eight of eight Tony he's never he was
0: great better. Well, that was really funny because I, I went into We went into the postgame presser. That's the first thing I asked Rick Carlisle. I was like, What'd you think of Tristan today? He played really well. It, he kind of saved your team. He got you to win. He said, Well, he's, he's, gonna he's going to be playing for the Bulls. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not what I expected that answer to be. <laughs> and it was funny because it hadn't hit the newsbreakers yet. It hadn't hit Walter Shops. <laughs> he's like, He's going to another team in our division and it starts with a C. <laughs> I was like, that's two teams. <laughs> this is helpful.
1: <laughs> Imagine all the, the bloggers in Cleveland. What? <laughs> I had a draft ready to go.
0: <laughs> that was one of the funny. That was the most one of the most Rick Carlisle pressers of my time covering the team. All right. A guy we've only seen five games of in a jersey that says Pacers, and they were summer league games. The mid the the rising mid-major talent, as he was called, when his uh, draft pick was leaked. <laughs> to Adrian Wojnarowski before the Pacers picked him. Ben Shepard, really interested to see what his season will look like. Cause I don't anticipate him playing much, but I do think he has skills that could be valuable in the NBA. Caitlin, Ben Shepard, what you got?
1: Yeah. So we move on to the other Ben. And I told you before we hopped on that my two questions were going to be more conceptual today. So the question with Ben was, you know, talking about the core and do you know what the foundation of your core is with Ben Shepard, this is more of a bit of a draft question, I think, because of what you just said. You said, I don't anticipate him playing very much this season. So if we look at the depth chart, I'll ask you, why, why do you not anticipate him playing very much this season? Obviously, he won't be a starter. So what, what do you project the second unit to be?
0: Uh, well, we just talked about Buddy, and then either Andrew at the one and Aaron at the three or TJ at the one air Andrew at the two and buddy at the three for, for the, the numbers don't matter, but those three sure. of those four players in your backcourt and then Jarris and whoever the backup center is. Uh, and then if there's an injury, you can slide a lot of those guys around and Jordan Wara is your super sub who can play three, four and slide guys down or up as needed.
1: So you're basically projecting Ben Shepard as like the 13th man
0: in this depth chart. Probably. Yes. I yeah. am.
1: I think I would land similarly. I think he's in a similar spot to Chris last year after Chris had fallen out of the rotation a bit. Only the difference is last year the Pacers were playing eight guards. So it was kind of yeah. possible for Chris to still play. With Toppin and Jerris Walker in the rotation, there's not as many opportunities for guards to be playing as what was the case a year ago. So I say this to say I think it sounds like both of us probably think that Ben Shepard could be playing with the Mad Ants next year. Agreed unless they're just intent on him getting developmental time at practices and with the team, which is possible. I know that that's how some teams prefer doing things. We don't know yet, but the reason I say this is because I think that Ben projects as pretty plug and play. I will say from the summer league games, he's going to need to add strength. He's going to need to build out his body because defensively he had good moments where he would stay in front of his guy, but he would stay in front of his guy while getting backed under the rim because he couldn't really hold his spot. So his contest didn't have as much impact. And then there were times like particularly he did not finish very well around the rim and in transition where he was getting knocked off his route or something that stood out to me is he's very good at making himself available. He's an intuitive cutter, but he would make those cuts and he would catch the ball. And then he would have to keep moving the ball, which is good because he's good at continuing advantages, but he couldn't always take the shots off the cut because he didn't trust his explosiveness to finish over the rotating defender. So, That's a piece like he's going to have to add strength as a rookie. But otherwise, I think that he can play off of other people's advantages well enough where you could see your way into him being in a rotation if it was on a team that didn't have quite as much depth as the Pacers right now. So if we view, oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry. I was just going to say, like, the the depth factor is definitely significant here, but I'm going to read off some 26th picks. That was not English, was it? 26th picks of recent years and the minutes they played. As a rookie, if that's okay. Yes. Okay, last year's 26th pick was Wendell Moore, who went to the Minnesota Timberwolves, who had a, a, a lot of big men, <laughs> Caitlin. A similar situation here, a buried 26th pick. He played for the Minnesota last year 153 total minutes. Like, that's way, that's too low in general, but again, not a lot of time there. Dylan Windler went 26th to the Cavs in Indy Legend in 2019. As a rookie, Dylan Windler played 513 minutes. Uh, a success story, Landry Shamet went 26th uh, his rookie year he played a bunch with the six uh with the sixers and not as much when he was traded to the clippers but still he played 1800 minutes caleb Swanigan, another indie guy uh, 189 minutes as a rookie after being the 26th pick Furkan corkmaz played 80 minutes after being the 26th pick peyton pritchard and bowens highland were two more successful ones 1268 minutes for pritchard and 1300 minutes for bowens highland so even the better ones barely cracked a thousand minutes there's a lot of 26 picks that just don't play that much. Like if it's late in the first round, that it, it, your, your team already has depth at that spot. You're just not prioritized. So it's not, it's not even necessarily me like saying Ben Shepard should play, but just in general where he's drafted and the Pacer situation makes me think that what you just said, the mad ants is going to be where he gets a lot more of his developmental time to do a lot of the things you just said. Continue. So then this,
1: this brings me to the big question then, which is, does it make sense to draft a ready to play player if there isn't room for him to play and show that he's ready? Other than with the Ants. And if you're gonna spend a lot of your time in the Ants, then would it make more sense to take a player who could perhaps, you know, tap into more of his upside getting those developmental reps? And this isn't to say, like, I think that Ben did a lot of good things at Summer League. Like, I liked him. I he, he there's not a lot of guys who you can see in one game. Take you know a shot off a Ricky off ball screen rescreen within a set action. Also step into a three and transition off of an offensive rebound. Cut into the corner and backpedal to make himself available for a three. He can shoot in a. a a wide variety of ways. And I do think that he's going to be effective at sliding into passing windows. And I think that something else that he's good at is if he catches the ball in the corner and he attacks a closeout, which this is a difference from Benedict Matherin, he can continue that advantage and keep the ball ahead of where the defense is rota- rotating rather than allowing the defense to catch up by holding on to it and having to make a decision. Um, I understand. I get that, you know, the Pacers clearly value shooting. It is kind of interesting that. Uh, Chad Buchanan said in the presser for these two that, like, one of the first questions that Rick Carlisle asks when they're <laughs> drafting players is, can they shoot? And my question, my follow-up question to that kind of is then, like, but you drafted Kendall Brown and Isaiah Jackson. <laughs> Interesting.
0: But, mm. but it was Rick the coach for the Isaiah? Oh, he was the coach for the Isaiah yeah. draft. Wow, yeah. And Barely. the Kendall Brown draft. but Barely.
1: um yep. Like that that's kind of interesting for the Pacers draft strategy as a whole is like sometimes like with Oklahoma city, you can see like a draft type and it doesn't seem like the Pacers necessarily have a draft type aside from most recently, they've clearly seemed to value durability. And it seems like, cause like some of these guys you can put in a pin and be like, Oh, these are very cerebral players. And others of them are like, Oh, that's a very high level athlete that fits them wanting to play in transition. Look how easily Kendall Brown can run the floor. Maybe he gives them link defensively, but there's not like a unifying thread, but Beside the point, I guess my overall take with Ben Shepard is I like things that he can do. And I think he fits and makes sense if there's a place for him to play. But does it make sense to take him at number 26 if you don't have a place for him to play?
0: Yes, and no. that's an interesting question because I I typically think rookies are bad anyway. And the Pacers want to be better this year. So I think they assumed, I don't know this, but I would imagine they assumed their 26th pick, even if they'd picked a ready-made player who was a forward. Wouldn't have played right at a position of any need, and they're they were a uniquely deep team anyway, right? Like the roster spot crunch they had heading into the draft made picking anyone who would play kind of hard. I feel like so I I think yeah I your question makes a lot of sense. I think the the difficulty I have with it would be like they picked a guy to position they're the most deep in, so there's a chance like even next year if Buddy's gone, there still could be no minutes <laughs> for Ben Shepard, right? So that's where it's a little confusing drafting a a more ready made player, especially one with a skill that that Carlisle really values really every team in the NBA values. So yeah, I think the follow-up question to me would be like, when does he ever, <laughs> when do the minutes come ever in his career? And like, what does that look like? And how did, what, what do they project that growth being if he is more of a project player? Cause you know, when I, when I was watching his threes at Belmont, like the thing that stood out to me is he can, with his feet set any direction, facing the basket, mm-hmm. not facing the basket, whatever he can get them up and make them. Uh, and he can use that and leverage it into an attack. So like, that's very valuable. Like, how do you develop the rest of the skills out from that, especially if he's only playing in the G League? And at what point do you say, okay, we've seen enough that he should be in the NBA? Well, then who is it playing? You're like, what does that path look like? So I think their situation made it hard for whoever they picked at that spot to get minutes <laughs> this year. But I think the the question for Ben Shepard is less about Ben Shepard and more about what does this mean for the rest of the guys in that spot? Or is this can be another Goga thing where we're just talking for years about, well, if they move this guy, they could play the Ben Shepard, and then it never happens.
1: I mean, I will say for Ben Shepard, I think he's very smart. One of my favorite possessions of him from Summer League is he crashes he crashes the glass from the wings very hard, which is something the Pacers have taken on schematically, that on missed threes, they typically send the guy from the opposite wing and are willing to you know, bank on the fact that more teams, because you're crashing hard, will go with that defender and it will actually somewhat help your transition defense now. Like in the past, it's been if you did that, oh, you're going to give out a leak out. And now more so, like when you watched – Ben Shepard's crashing from the wing. His defender goes with him. And then it's harder for teams to do that. But anyways, he did that. And then it ended up being a made shot. And Chet Holmgren gets it. Or no, he Chet Holmgren gets the rebound. It's like a grab and go. And he pesters. Ben Shepard pesters him all the way up the court and then actually like tries to wall up and gets a stop and then ends up batting out the rebounds. And then they go the other way and he runs out. Like it was just a really good sequence from him of a lot of like smart little heady plays. And I thought he did that at at moments throughout. So like, I understand them, you know, they value spacing, they value playing in flow game. There's, there's things to like about it. It's just that like what you just said, the only way in my head that I can think through a way that Ben gets on the court is of course, you know, multiple injuries, which, you know, knock on wood there, but also if they were to move both buddy healed and TJ McConnell, if both of them were to get moved by the trade deadline or over the next year, then I could see a scenario where Ben Shepard plays. Otherwise, I just don't think it's very likely.
0: And that's not impossible. Like they're both 30 mm-hmm. plus and they both have a contract that's not fully guaranteed next season. And Buddy Heald's case, there's nothing, but yeah, that requires two things to happen. And even then it's like, if you're trying to be good, you really want to rely on a guy who hasn't played very much to be your, you know, your backup. Like that'd be a question they would have. They would have to answer there. And I don't. Maybe I haven't thought enough about this because in my head, I just like anyone picked after, I don't know, 20. I don't even really think about them playing that much in their first season. Usually that's because they are picked by a good team, which is why they're being picked late the first round. But I just usually don't think of what the, the path will be for them until they're ready or until an opportunity comes. But a lot of the reasons the guys who get that opportunity are good is because they get the opportunity in the first place. So what's that going to look like and how for Ben Shepard?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think too, some of it, like if we look at, Selecting Chris Duarte. And it's nothing about Chris Duarte or Ben Shepard as players. There's things I like about both of them. The situation for Chris was no longer particularly favorable for him to look more like the guy he was as a rookie. But like that always kind of felt like a pick to me of like Doug McDermott just left to go to San Antonio. We need another movement shooter and he's here and we can select him. Now I don't know that, but that's what it felt like. And it didn't feel necessarily Like it was coinciding with where their timeline was headed. Like, obviously, at that point in time, they thought they were still going to make a run with that current core. As it turned out, the core was stale and they ended up needing to veer toward a rebuild. And then maybe, you know, Chris doesn't make as much sense at that point in time. I mean, I thought around that trade deadline when they moved Sabonis that they should have looked at moving Chris then just because he was an older rookie. And, you know, with Ben, it's somewhat, it's like the reverse of the Chicago Bulls. Like the Bulls have DeRozan and Levine and Vucevic and they keep drafting all these guys who are more projects, which doesn't really make sense. They don't have guys at the end of their rotation who are ready to play. Like Patrick Edwards, to a sense, was always going to need development. Dale and Terry was always going to need development, who they just took this year is going to need development where they bought in to get into that round. And now with the Pacers, it feels like, you know, with Ben and Chris, they took guys who were going to plug into the rotation, but especially with Ben, like I said, there's not necessarily a clear place for him to plug. So if you are going to be playing with the Mad Ants, then maybe if it's somebody who can go down there and like really needs that development in order to tap into some sort of upside and then they come back in two years, maybe that makes a little bit more sense. But certainly if Buddy ends up getting moved because he's in a contract year, if they decide, hey, we want Andrew to be playing full-time backup bench minutes and it's time to move on from TJ and then Ben can step in at shooting guard, like there's stuff I like about him. So then in that way, I can talk myself into it.
0: And I think, too, if you're at 26 and you realize you have a roster crunch and you don't like any of your trade offers, picking the best shooter left is a smart thing to do, right? You still still have to figure out from there what that means for your team and your long-term outlook. But, yeah, valid question about you stumped me with your OB Miles conundrum yesterday, and now you've stumped me with Ben Shepard's long-term spot, which I did not expect. Two stumps in two days. You're you're killing it.
1: Yeah, so I guess – I mean, we've kind of already talked about his role projection and the big question in a way. We've talked about the best case and the worst case. I mean, I guess the best case for Ben Shepard really yeah. is for, but the best case for Ben Shepard really is that he gets development somewhere, or at least gets reps to be playing somewhere, whether that's with the Pacers or the Mad Ants, and that if he gets called upon and they need him due to injuries or trades, he looks ready to step in and play. He moves off of other people's advantage as well. The three point shot falls for him defensively. I do think that defensively he had some good moments, like I just pointed out with Chet Holmgren and then there was other times like in the game against Detroit when Marcus Zasser went off for like 40 against them where I'm like, how are we still ducking under on these screens? Like sometimes Ben Shepard ducks under and I don't fully understand why. And that was the thing at Belmont as well, where it's like, I, I don't, maybe that's I where don't...
0: the habit came from too.
1: Yeah. So, I think that that's the best case. And then the worst case for him would be that the roster stays as is because they're trying to make a push for the playoffs. The vets are still getting minutes. And he is playing with the Mad Ants and looks like he could play at the NBA level, but he just, there's never really a spot that opens up for him to actually be able to do that.
0: Similar to IJAX uh, as a rookie, right? Where he spent some time with four win. Hey, one advantage for Ben Shepard this year it's the Indiana Mad Ants playing downtown. So uh, he could drive to the same facilities every day, regardless of what team he's with.
1: And I will say the one thing for Ben that is different than Isaiah Argoga is, is when you load up and you're drafting a lot of guys at the center position, you're not going to play multiple centers at once. If you load up and you have multiple shooters, it's a lot easier to play a lot of shooters at one time. (laughs) So you can, you can talk yourself into it.
0: Agreed. I'll be very curious what, what his season and career looks like. And if he could just make the reason he's in the game, I think he'll fill in well enough. But of course you never know until you actually See it happen. I have no more Ben Shepard thoughts unless you do. Kalen. I do not have any more Ben Shepherd thoughts. All right. We will be back with two more of these next week. I told you the positions, Kalen, but I honestly can't remember. I know it's threes and fives in some order, but I don't remember which one we said we'd do first. We probably had to do Daniel Tice right away. Well, the, the ink is still fresh.
1: We should have already been doing that. I
0: saw the picture of this of him this
1: morning sitting in like some very almost Game of Thrones looking like throne with the big World Cup trophy. So we'll have to do
0: the five
1: we'll
0: have to do the fives next so we can hear more uh German. I expect to do the whole segment in German where I have no idea what to respond to.
1: <laughs> YouTube's trying to do the transcript and it's just like a bunch yeah. of they don't even understand my pronunciation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tap into a new market. You know, I don't know if you know who Mr. Beast is. He's this YouTube person who has a bajillion subscribers, but he translates all of his videos into every language and just has channels that say like Mr. Beast Spanish. I need locked on Pacers, Spanish, locked on Pacers, French, locked on Pacers, Germany. I'm missing a ton of market. By not the funny translate. thing is,
1: is I don't think there is a Twitter account. That's like Pacers, Germany. I know there's Pacers, Brazil and there's Pacers, China and there's Pacers, France, but I don't know if there is a Pacers, Germany.
0: That's a great question. Is there something come from random countries that surprised me?
1: Yeah, I don't know. The Pacers seem to be big in Brazil.
0: That one, yes. Yes. I can, I've actually started that one quote tweets me or like, like references stuff I reported. And I've actually started to recognize words in different languages because of that. I'm <laughs> you like, know yeah, Portuguese right.
1: now? Tony knows Portuguese.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for a Brazilian player to be back on the Pacers at this point. Kalen, of course, thank you. For the time, we'll be back early next week. Where can people follow you and your work and your thoughts covering these players, this team going forward?
1: All right, so my handle is there. If you're watching us on YouTube at C2 underscore Cooper, you can go there and there's a link to the Patreon, patreon.com slash basketball she wrote. I'm still in the thick of recording about a million podcasts over the last next two weeks. So (laughs) if you want to hear me talking to a microphone about basketball played by the Pacers or the Central Division, you will have many options to do so.
0: You gotta gotta have some cough drops or some tea. Keep the keep the voice fresh.
1: It was a it was a hard day. I I'd, I'd recorded one like I had like two back to back, and I left, and I had to go
0: drive somewhere. And I was like, I have no water. I'm parched. Load management. <laughs> all that speaking. You're an all star, right? You you can't sit out anymore, or you can only sit out if another all star doesn't sit out, right?
1: Why was I an all star blogger within the last three years? <laughs>
0: Those rules confuse me quite a bit, but
1: they're is, very arbitrary.
0: The, Have you the, the NBA can't say this, but they they want to be like like Jordan Poole is really popular, right? Like they they want to say we don't want you to ever sit Jordan Poole, but they can't make a rule that just says like they pick a list of fifty players.
1: <laughs> so the yeah. minute the minutes made me laugh. They're like, if you are over thirty five or you've played thirty four thousand minutes. <laughs> It's like that's like eight people.
0: I know. I wish they had I wish they had made it a minutes cutoff. That was like so obvious they were trying to disclude or include one player in the list just for funny reasons. If you don't know what we're talking about, the NBA has a new load management rules they're trying to implement that you should check out. We'll be Everybody back arbitrary. <laughs> We'll be back early next week here. Uh, If you want to listen to Darius McGee talk about basketball, yesterday's podcast is for you. He was kind enough to join us for 20 minutes. He will be with the Pacers for some portion of training camp. So fun insight from Darius there. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day. We'll see you soon.